while you're doing that, I wanted to explain. Some of you noticed this big red mark on the side of my face. It isn't right there. It isn't ringworm. So don't worry. You can, you can get close. I actually, uh, we had a great time on vacation, and perhaps I had too good of a time and forgot that I'm in my 40s versus in my teens. And um, I was riding the Alpine slide on Mount Anatash. It's a concrete trough. You sit in the sled with wheels and you go really fast. You know, wow, we got another one. Great. <laughs> All right, so I, I don't feel that, but as a matter of fact, I, I, I could just spend time talking about where others have done things like this because I have stories to talk about you guys. But uh, this is my story. I was going down the Alpine slide and um, my first run I did really well and I went fast and had no problems. And then I, my next run I was on a different track and, and in my mind I wasn't trying to go too fast, but I guess I was. And I fell, I fell off the sled and skidded down the concrete for quite a way at while. So, that, so I have uh, cuts and actually that's not the worst of it. The worst is on my back and my knee too, so I got a big spot. So. so once again, I have done, I've hurt myself forgetting that I'm in my 40s versus in my teens. Yes, I, oh, well, thanks for reminding me. Thanks for reminding me of that important detail. I, I, after I wiped out, I got back on my sled and continued down, and I, I don't think I was trying to go fast this time, and I wiped out again. And so, yeah, what I did is I skinned this side of me the first time, and then the next time I wiped out and I skinned that side. I just wanted to make it, make it even, you know. So, yeah, so that we made a family memory that day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm in good company here. I, there's a lot of 30, 40-plus folks who have similarly hurt themselves, so... So no self-righteousness, please, okay? <laughs> so. But it was a good time, regardless. Well, we're going to take a look at Genesis 3 this morning. And I'm just I'm so glad to be back here with you guys and in the Word of God together. God is so good to us to meet us Sunday after Sunday and to minister to us through His Word. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll take a look at this section of Scripture this morning. Lord, we just thank You for Your goodness to us and Your mercy and grace and faithfulness. Lord, I pray that You would speak to Your people here this morning. You would speak to Your people. You would speak to those who are not yet Your people as well, Lord. And Lord, in speaking, You would, you would make Yourself known in all Your glory and Your goodness. And Lord, in speaking, You would instruct us in Your truth. And You would teach us that we might know the truth. Lord, You promised those who continue in the truth are truly disciples of Yours and they shall know the truth and the truth shall make them free. And we thank You, Lord, that Your speaking of the truth is not just to share ideas. You want to bring change. You want to, to free sinners you want to free your people to walk more and more in your ways and forgiveness and holiness. And we thank you for your heart. And so, God, we ask you together, speak to us. Use your word, Lord. Use the gift of preaching. Use me, an earthen vessel, a weak vessel, a sinful vessel, even, to speak your word. We just depend on you and we thank you that you're faithful and you're our Father. And so we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Amen. We're going to read the passage in a minute. I just wanted to review a little bit. We've been in Genesis, in our summer series in Genesis, and we've been learning some key things. We learned about God as Creator, that He has made all things, and through His creation, He expresses His glory, His good goodness, His infinite worth through His creation. That's the purpose of creation, to express His glory. We've learned that mankind was made to rule over this creation God has made and to be the image of God, to image Him, to reflect His glory. And we are made in His image. And we learned that He created mankind to dwell in paradise, to dwell in this royal garden of Eden and to enjoy intimate fellowship with Him and to enjoy His goodness and glory in creation and to rule over it. This week we're going to take a look at Genesis chapter 3 and how this creation, this perfect creation and this wonderful communion with God was altered horribly. Really, Genesis 3 in some ways is a, a horror story. It's a horror story in Scripture. Now, we may enjoy horror stories, um, there are all sorts of horror stories out there, and, and you, I, I think you can enjoy horror stories even to the glory of God. And I remember, for me, one of my earliest horror stories that, that uh, I encountered was when I was in fifth grade, and, and we were on a, a camp retreat with my class, and Mr. Webster, the science teacher, told the story of the hand. Um, <laughs> And it's in, do you guys know that story? I don't even remember all the details, but it's the hand, and there's this severed hand that some guy has. I don't know why he has it, but he keeps it in a box, and I don't know if, if he cut the guy's hand off or whatever. And then, then one night, the hand creeps out of the box and creeps to the guy's room. And, and we're sitting in a room, fifth graders, with the lights out, and Mr. Webster, who's this kind of pe peculiar old man, is telling this story with a really scary voice, and he's, you know, he says, and the hand crept, and it got closer and closer to the man, and it started to climb up the bed, and all of a sudden, and then Mr. Webster screams, throws this fake hand in the middle of the floor, and, and shines a light on it, and you can imagine the effect of fifth graders. <laughs> we all just about jumped out of our skin, and that was one of the earliest horror stories I remember, the hand, uh, and Mr. Webster telling that story. So horror stories can be fun, but this one is not fun. It's a serious horror story. It's a very serious one. And it's the horror story to beat all other horror stories. So in some ways, there's some bad news to share this morning. And it's the horror story of sin. And I don't necessarily enjoy telling this horror story. And I don't think in some ways, that God takes particular joy in telling us this horror story either. But it's a horror story we need to hear because there's another story after the horror story that God wants us to know about. He wants us to understand this horror story, the horror story of sin, so that we can understand the wonderful good news of grace in the Gospel. See, grace... And the Gospel really makes no sense if first we don't understand the horror of sin. And so there must be a Genesis chapter 3 before there's a John 3.16. 
Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything to us. So we're going to take time to look at this horror story. And the thing about this horror story that's particularly horrible is that it's not fiction, it's reality. And it doesn't include actors that you don't know. It includes us. We are in this horror story. So let's take a look at this section so that we can understand the horror story, the horror story of sin. This is a horror story that every human being is in. And really, the book of Genesis, after chapter 3, throughout the whole book of Genesis, and then the whole Bible, is affirmation that this is a reality for every human being. So this story, this account in Genesis 3, helps us understand and interpret everything that follows. So let's take a look. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1-13. through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was the light to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is Genesis 1, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. What a sad, sad day this day was. The original paradise, this royal garden, this perfect communion, this innocence, man's rule over creation, 
all these things marred by the sin. And ultimately, Adam and Eve and their actions not only marred their experience, but have plunged humanity into countless miseries and horrors because of this sin. This day was almost the worst day in all of history. I believe there was a worse day, but that would be the day that Christ died, but also that day was the greatest day as well. But almost the worst day in all of human history. Really, what happened in this section just doesn't make sense. If you can really perceive what's going on, it just doesn't make sense. Really, what Eve did and what Adam did, what they did together was insane. It made no sense. Here was a perfect God, a glorious God, an infinite God, a good God who had blessed them with everything they could ever want. It was perfection. They had perfect harmony with Him. They had perfect relationship with one another. They had everything they needed for food. They had the privilege of ruling over all of creation. And yet, they chose to reject all those things. To, to rebel against all those things and, and instead to embrace a lie, a fantasy, a deception. They gave up everything all good things for a lie. Their sin was insanity. Their sin is like the sin of an addict who for a passing thrill, a feeling, would give up his loving wife and children and even sell all he has for something. Not only is their sin like that sort of insanity, but their sin is like the insanity that we all partake of. For we are all descendants of Adam and Eve and we all do the same thing. So as we look at this section in Scripture, I believe the intended point is not that we say, what a dummy Adam was. He really blew it. But we understand, wow, that's just like me. There's something that happened there that has influenced where I'm at right now. Because what I see happening there in Genesis 3 happens in my life all the time. The same insanity of rejecting the infinite glory and goodness of God for a passing thrill, a lie, goes on in my life. I do the same thing. So as we look at this, we need to understand that we are in this story. This is the origin of the story, but we are in the story ourselves, in our sin. You see, Adam and Eve were the first humans and they were our representatives. And we are their descendants. And through their sin, we all sinned. They were really the, the best that humanity had to offer. They did not have any of the things and temptations that we have ultimately. They did not have a corrupt nature in them. They didn't have the world pressing them and yet they failed. And we failed in them and we would have done the same. So they are our representatives and we experience the same thing that they experienced. This, this experience of sin is a universal experience for all of humanity. For all of us, it goes on. This insanity of sin. So with that in mind, 
Let's take a look at the passage in a little more detail so we can understand what went on and what that means for us today. Starting out in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. There's this new character in this story, the serpent. The serpent is a creation of God. It's an animal. And we have the animal telling Eve some things in the beginning. And, and we should note something that's going on here in this storyline. God had made everything and He had made an order to everything. Do you remember some of that order? He had made Earlier He had made the animals, right? And then He had made mankind to rule over the animals. And then He had made His wife to be a helper fit for Him. To be under His caring leadership. And to together to rule over all things. So there was this order of man, his wife, then the animals. And here we have in Genesis 3, it gets flipped upside down. Something is wrong right from the get-go. We have an animal, a serpent, telling the wife something, and then the husband essentially following her lead because the Scripture says he was there with her. So things are already in trouble right in verse 1. There's this serpent speaking to Eve. Everything's turned up down in this upside down. This serpent is more than just an animal, for he is the vehicle of Satan himself, another character in the Bible. We know that because of how the rest of the Bible teaches us about Satan. In Revelation 12:9, he's called the old serpent, the devil. So we know this serpent is a manifestation of Satan. And we don't have time really this morning to talk about who Satan is and, and everything about him. But to give you a brief description, and I encourage you to look at Revelation 12, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, as well as the whole of Scripture on this. Satan was a created angel, a glorious angel, who because of his pride and the lie of his pride, for pride is really just a lie, it's, it's a false thing, he, he sought to exalt himself above God, which is foolishness. And because of that sin of pride, he was cast from the presence of God, from heaven, along with his, uh, his subordinates. And that's where demons come from, basically. So Satan and his angels, or his demons, have already been cast from heaven. And here we have him using the form of a serpent to come in and to tempt. To really, to get Eve and humanity to follow the same lie that he himself had already followed and already been judged for without hope. So there's this interaction. And it's interesting to look at this interaction, to look at what goes on with Eve in this temptation. So the, so the serpent comes to Eve and tempts her. And notice what he does. He uses just really deceitful rhetoric, basically, to get her to fall. He says, did God actually say... So he asks the question, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually... So he's saying, did, did God really say that? And in a sense, he's trapping her because he didn't say that. So how do you answer a question that's not true? I mean, he's trapping... It's like saying, when are you going to stop beating your wife? I mean, there's, there's no way out... Uh, you've heard that sort of thing. There's no way out of that <laughs> sort of question. What do you mean? I, I, that's what he's, he's... He's deceiving her by asking, did God really say you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? And not only that, but in his question, he's... He's trying to cast doubt on the character of God. He's trying to say to Eve, is God really that stingy? 
that he gave you the strict command? You, I heard you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden. Is that, is that right? And in a sense, what he's saying behind that is, what sort of God is this? I mean, help me understand this. I, I, I mean, I don't understand. He says you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And so right away, he's, he's bringing doubt about the character of God. And I would submit that sin and temptation starts right there. It starts with doubting who God is. Doubting His goodness. Doubting His glory. And Satan knows that. And so that's what he does. He's trying to get Eve to doubt. So that's why he asked that question. It's, it's, a, it's a, called a double entendre. It's basically a, a question that has something subtle going on with it that brings doubt. That's not straightforward. So he... So he says this to Eve and, and, and uh, basically implies that God is somehow stingy. And gives the implication that he's not trustworthy. And so Eve answers back, right? What does she say? She answers rightly, actually, at the start. And the woman said to the servant, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So he answers her, uh, she answers him, the serpent, correctly. But then says, But God says, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. We can see that right away, Eve is giving some ground to the serpent. Because God actually didn't say that, did He? Did He say you can't touch it? What was His command? Don't eat of this tree. And what was the context for his commands? Early on in Scripture, he made a garden full of glorious trees. Every sort of tree that was good to look at, that was good to enjoy. He said, this is yours. He gave them huge latitude to enjoy creation. He gave them fellowship with himself. He blessed them with everything they could want. He only gave them one little tiny requirement. One little tiny thing. Don't eat of this tree. Don't eat the fruit of this tree. You can do all these other things. He didn't say you couldn't touch it. Don't eat the fruit. Gave them one little tiny test. One little opportunity to trust Him at His Word and not themselves. And yet Satan's casting it the other way. He's saying, did he really say? Did he really say this? And, and so it looks like Eve is kind of giving some ground here. And saying, well, he said we couldn't touch it. Matter of fact, he said, I mean, he said we couldn't eat it. Matter of fact, he said we couldn't even touch it. So it seems that she's kind of giving ground to this whole idea that God is a little stricter than he really is. She's adding to the Word of God. We don't want to take away from the Word of God, certainly, but neither do we want to add to the Word of God. Adding to the Word of God can be just as serious as taking away from it. That was the sin of the Pharisees. The sin of the Pharisees, the contemporary of Jesus, the contemporaries of Jesus who added to the Word of God. Do you know why they added to the Word of God? They added to the Word of God because they thought that their rules would somehow make them better at obeying the Word of God. They talked about this hedge around the law. They said, we'll create all these other rules to kind of come alongside the simple instructions of Scripture to prevent us from ever transgressing that simple instruction. So they added. They did the same thing. And then they created a picture of God that was very inaccurate. Was it not? God was a legalistic God. And if you wanted to approach God, you had to, to do all these ridiculous things. No longer was He a God of grace who has holy requirements, 
but he was a God of stinginess who said, this is just an impossibility. I am a strict God. Yes, he's a strict God in his holiness, but he's not like that. So they added to the Word of God. And if you look in Scripture, it's really interesting. Jesus' attitude towards the Pharisees was very tough. But his attitude towards the irreligious was not. To those who were sinners and knew it, he, he had open arms. But to those who added to the Word of God, He was very harsh with them. They received judgment from the Savior. So adding to the Word of God is very seriously. We don't want to be a people who add to the Word of God. We don't want to be a people who have an image of God as somehow this, this hard, stingy God. We want Him to be who He is. He's a gracious God. And His commands are good. They're good. They're not silly. They're good. They lead to blessing and life. That's the sort of God that we serve. question for us this morning is, what is our God like? Is He a God of graciousness with simple good commands, or is He a stingy God? Are you falling to the same lie, falling prey to the same lie that Eve was? To serve God is an impossible thing. This is, I don't want to follow Him. I want to have fun. I don't want to have anything to do with His requirements. They're, they're just too hard and, and He's stingy. I don't want anything to do with Him. I want my own thing. I want to have fun. Or are you believing that He is a good and generous God and His commands are a delight? That choice describes all of us. We're either in one place or the other. And we all are very often in the place of thinking that God is stingy and not good and doubting the character of God. And that's the start of sin. That's the start of disobedience. What we believe about God is very important. Tozer, A.W. Tozer has said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about you, the most important thing you can think about is what is God like? So this question is really important. What is your God like? Is He a God of grace and mercy and goodness and holiness? Or is He a taskmaster, a stingy miser, intolerant, impatient, If you see Him as He is, good and gracious, forgiver of sinners in Christ, I think you will walk in His good ways. If you believe God is good, if you believe God is the best, you yourself will walk in goodness in His ways. But if you believe He's stingy and He's not good, you will sin. And that's what was going on with Eve. Satan was getting her to believe lies about God to cast doubt on his character. And Eve starts to fall to that. She says, yeah, he, he, neither should you touch it. And I think at this point, Satan kind of says, man, here's my end. She's fallen. Let's go for it. And so he takes on a direct approach at this point. He directly contradicts what God says. You will not surely die. He goes right for the, right for the jugular, the frontal attack. You will not surely die. And then he continues this whole impugning of God's nature, this, this negative reflection, this casting of doubt on God's character. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he's continuing to deceive her about who God is and, and, and what will happen if she disobeys. And says basically, you know, this God is he's just, a, he's just a selfish God. And He's just trying to keep you down. He's just trying to keep you from being all that you could be in Him. He doesn't want you to take of this fruit because he wants, to, he wants you to be under Him. He wants to control you. He wants to have you do it His way. He doesn't care about you. That's basically what He's saying. If you eat of this fruit, God knows that you're going you're gonna to see. Your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like God and you're going to know good and evil. And isn't that a good thing? Who wants to follow a God that, that's like that? Has anyone ever thought anything like that? Have you guys ever thought that God really just trying to keep me down or trying to control me? Or, you know, if I really want to have fun, I've got to go do something else. I've, if I really want to have a full life, I, you know, I shouldn't be wasting my time trying to follow Jesus or believe in Jesus or follow the commands of God. You know, I mean, that's, that's just not, that's not fun. Anyone ever thought like that? Yeah. I mean, I have. I think we do. I think every time we sin, that's basically what we're thinking. We think that sin is better than God's way. We think that there's something of benefit in sin. We wouldn't do it otherwise, would we? I mean, that, would you? No, of course not. I mean, why, why do something that's not beneficial? The problem is we think it's more beneficial than obedience. We think it's more beneficial than faith. We think doubt and disobedience is better than faith and obedience. And that, Satan knows that. And so that's why he gets Eve to believe something false about God. To get her to, to believe a false promise too. A lie. He lies. He just lies. And he, and he deceives her. And that's all Satan has for a weapon, you know, ultimately. He, the serpent doesn't, like, get her arm behind her back and start twisting it. He doesn't use any physical force. He just speaks a lie. That's his weapon. A lie. And if he can get us to believe the lie, he knows he has us. And so much of life and much of our struggle with sin is about struggling with the truth versus a lie. And if we want to see victory over sin, we must learn to fill our minds and our hearts with the truth. And we must learn to say, that's a lie. That's the truth. I'm not going to believe that. And sometimes you may feel like believing the truth. Other times you may feel like believing the lie. But if you fill your minds, if you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, Scripture talks about, then you will learn to say, no, that's a lie. I will not believe it. I may feel like believing that. I may be tempted to believe that. I may, there may be some part of me that thinks there's some good in that, but I know the truth. That's the truth. That's a lie. That's why that's so important. That's why the Word of God is so important in our lives. To get to know the Word. To allow it to fill our minds. To flush out the lies. Allow us to be able to determine what is lie and what is truth. Because Satan's biggest weapon, really his only weapon, is a lie. And really, sin that now dwells within us since Adam, its greatest weapon is a lie. So that's what goes on here. That's how sin works. So Eve starts to succumb to this. This insanity. She starts to believe the lie. She fails the test. And Adam with her of standing on the Word of God and what God said to do. 
and to trust God. She fails that test. Adam does with her. And it's interesting to watch the progress of things. So Satan comes in. He tells her this lie. She starts to believe the lie. And then what happens next? What happens next? She sins. Before that, though, there's something else that's in in the passage. Verse 6. She looks at the tree. She saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took the fruit and ate. So there's the lie, there's the doubt. It's basically a progression of doubt, desire, disobedience. Doubt, desire, disobedience. He brings a doubt, she doubts the the word of God, she believes the lie, and then there's something that happens inside of her. Oh, wow, you know, this fruit thing is pretty good. I like this. That, that tree's really nice. That fruit looks really good. I like how it looks. It's a delight to the eye. And, and it's, I bet it tastes really good. And, wow, man, it would be really great to, to know good and evil and to be really smart. I want to be smart. So there's desire growing in her. There's this, it's not just the mind and just thinking and not just a faith issue. Now it's inside of her. There's like, yeah, yeah, this is good. And so that desire is, is part of the sin equation as well. So for us, as well as for Eve, the way sin works, there's the doubt, there's truth versus a lie, there's what you believe. And then what starts to happen is the desire grows in us. Whoa, it would be really nice to, to eat this fruit. Or it would be really nice to cheat on my taxes. Or it would be really nice to look at this image on the Internet. That, yeah. That'll, that'll be good. I'll feel good. Or I'll have extra money. Or if I have to follow this fantasy, yeah, it'll make me feel good. So there's desire there as well. And we have to understand that when that starts happening, we're in trouble. Because not only have we doubted, but now we're starting to think. And we're starting to feel this is good. The Puritans call that our affections. That basically what we want, what we desire, how we feel about not just emotions, but, but, but our disposition towards things they called their affections. And they talk much about this truth of how sin works in us. Works on our mind and our thinking. What's true? What's a lie? Works on our faith. But then our affection, our desires follow. And so we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of that. And so what follows from her desires is the actual doing of sin, the disobedience. And that what is what follows with us as well. Doubt, desire, disobedience. That's how it works with Eve. That's how it works with us. This truth is inescapable. This is the human condition. This is how sin works in each of us and all of us. You believe the thing is the best there is. You believe it's good. And then you want what you think is best. And then you act accordingly. Matter of fact, you know that's how we operate every day in everything we choose to do. We always choose what we think is best. Now, it may not be straightforward, but, but we, always, when we, have, we always have different options before us of what we can do. The way we make decisions is we think this would be best. Not necessarily for us immediately, but in the long run we may think this will be the best thing to do, but somehow it's the, the more favorable option. We always choose what we think is most favorable. And then we'll often our affections align with that choice. 
Sometimes our affections go ahead of us. Sometimes they fall behind us. But they will line up with that choice. We always operate that way. That's human nature. That's how it works. You always choose, in the long run, what you think is best. And then you desire accordingly. And then you act accordingly. And so it's important for us to understand that working in us in regards to sin. Because that's how sin happens. We, we choose to sin because we think it's best. We think it's best. At least for the moment, we think it's best. And then our desires are there. Sometimes our desires go ahead of us, right? And they tell us, yeah, this is a good thing. Do it, right? And then we say, yeah, yeah, it is good. And then we do it. That's how we operate. Does that make sense? That, that's, that's a, it's a truth for us. It's important for us to grasp that because I think we'll understand how it operated in Eve, but we'll also be able to understand how it operates in us. And then we'll also, in that context, be able to bring in the cure for sin, which we'll get into in a little bit, to apply to us in those situations. So if you are in that place, you are not alone. We are all there. It's how it works. Maybe I could give a little illustration if it helps. Say there's two brothers. Both brothers are, are happily married. They have loving families. They have a good job, both brothers. and They have good friends around them. And both brothers are tempted. Say they work in the same place. Tempted by a woman at work who, who's flirtatious. She's attractive. She's fun. She's interesting. She's also eager to have a relationship with one of these two brothers. And one brother ends up falling in adultery with this woman. The other brother doesn't. What was the difference between the two brothers? Why did one fall and the other not? I would submit one brother, in his mind, the one who fell, thought, this is most worthy, having an adulterous relationship. The thrill of this thing, at least at the moment that he was tempted, is of more worth than his relationship with his wife, his children, his friends, and so forth. And so he chose the better in his own mind and then followed through with disobedience. The other brother didn't choose because at that moment of temptation, there was something else in his mind that was better. Now, perhaps we would hope it was his relationship with his wife, the happiness of his wife, the happiness of his children, the happiness of those around him, his happiness in their happiness, the happiness perhaps of his relationship with God if he was a believer. So he chose at that moment what was best. We always choose what, was, what is best. And then desire and, and action follow from that. Does that help? I hope. Okay. We all face that all the time. That is how we live and that is how sin works in our lives. This universal condition of sin that Eve and Adam experienced right here in Genesis 3 continues throughout history and for us today and will continue even for the believer, until we go to be with the Lord. And then thank God for that day when we are done with this. We are done with it. So, so what we believe, Romans 14.23, I think it's your mem- the memory verse for today, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So if what we believe and what put our faith in, if we're, if we're not believing God and acting accordingly, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We walk according to what we believe. We walk in holiness when we believe the truth in God. And then James 1 talks about how desires grow in us and lead to sin. This is our condition. So the question for us this morning 
in light of this, is this. What is best? Maybe more personal, what is best in your mind? What is the best thing that could happen to you? What is the best thing for you to do? What is the best thing for you to experience right now? Now, you know, when we're asked those sort of questions, often we get philosophical because we know what we're supposed to say, and that's not what I'm getting after. What do you feel? What do you desire? What do you want? What do you really want? That's the question for us. That's how we begin to uncover what we're doing, how we're struggling with sin, if we're succeeding or not. Now, there are some other important truths that, are, that must come alongside this we're going to get to. Because we do need to encounter the reality for us at some point today even that, that we are going to want to sin. We are at some point going to think that something sinful is better. Now, it may not be something too severe. It may not be the story, in, like the, the adultery in the story. It may just be choosing to argue with somebody. It may just be choosing to raise our voice with our spouse or our sibling because we think it's best. We think the best thing I can do right now is to get loud, to get my way. So it may be something more subtle like that. But we are all going to experience this and encounter this and we must come face to face with that reality because we are descendants of Adam and Eve. We are sinners. And again, not so that we can kind of just dwell on sinfulness and not move on. It's so that we can understand our predicament and appreciate the cure. Appreciate the cure that we have. So this sin goes on. Adam and Eve. Back to Eve and Adam. She thinks this is good stuff. And she, her desires are there. So she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her probably should have been saying, oh, stop Eve, let's not even listen to the serpent. But he was there, following Eve's lead. He eats it willingly. Then, there are consequences of their sin. Their eyes were both opened. Like Satan had promised, their eyes were indeed opened. But what was the result? And they knew that they were naked. They saw that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So their nakedness was exposed. They knew that they were naked. Now, the question is, did they know they were naked before? I mean, is this like somehow they began to understand anatomy or something now that they ate the fruit? that they, they understood? I mean, I think they knew they were naked. They knew they didn't have clothes on, right? They had eyes to see. So what does it mean they knew they were naked? What does it mean they knew they were naked? It, it's more than physically naked. They came to understand at that moment who they were apart from God. They came to understand at that moment their poverty, their wretched state, their shame. They saw who they were without God. They were ashamed. And Scripture paints a picture of mankind that apart from God, we are indeed naked. We are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, Revelation talks about. We are naked apart from God. If we try to stand on our own before Him, we have nothing to offer. Nothing to cover ourselves. We are entirely vulnerable before Him. Though we may sow fig leaves to cover ourselves, the reality is before God we have nothing. We are in danger. We are exposed. We are weak. We are vulnerable. 
We are small. We are little. And it's interesting in the passage, as soon as they understood they were naked, what did they do? They tried to cover themselves. They sewed fig leaves together somehow. Fig leaves. I mean, how sad. How silly. Little fig leaves to to make shorts to cover themselves. And you know what? Mankind's been doing that ever since. Sewing fig leaves together to try to cover ourselves. Coming up with schemes. Coming up with ways of living. Coming up with facades. Walking in bravado. Coming up with religious works. Boasting in our empty, vain glory to cover ourselves and somehow make ourselves not feel quite so vulnerable and naked and weak and alone. That's mankind. And that's the believer's experience too. To sow fig leaves. To cover ourselves as well. To find ways to make ourselves look better than we are apart from God. What fig leaves are you sewing together? What things are you looking for to make yourself feel good about yourself? Hopefully it's Christ. Hopefully it's the clothing He provides. Righteousness. And glory eventually. But I know if you're like me, at times you're looking to something else. Something else to make you feel good. To make you feel good about yourself. It could be work. It could be friends. Nothing wrong with those things. Money. Personality. We can put on a good face and, and then start to believe the face we put on. What sort of fig leaves are you wearing to cover your shame? I know for me, I... I think I've grown in this, but, but I grew up in a, in a family and I, and I had, when I, before I knew the Lord, I had this whole image. I had this whole way of projecting myself. Um, I remember I had an uncle, um, great guy, but he was just cool. Uncle Tom was cool. And he would just, when he talked, he would just talk slow and calm. Hello, Paul. How are you? He was just cool. He was always cool. And I can remember for myself trying to be cool as a teenager. And just to, to hide my, my feelings, to, to hide what I thought, and just to kind of be aloof. And, and God has had to address that in my life. Um, that would be a tendency for me, left to myself, just to be cool, to be aloof, to not, kind of let no one in. And, and just to present this image. Actually, when I used to walk down the halls of my high school, I just was projecting an image. I used to walk different. I used to walk, I used to walk with my arms out, and kind of like this down the hallway. And, and just, I was Mr. Cool. And I remember one upperclassman once saying, well, what, do you got balloons under your arms or something? What's up with that? You know, and, and, but I had this whole facade. And, and you know, that's a teenager. But I can still do that. I can still hide behind some sort of facade and not let anyone in. That's not what we're called to as believers. We're called to recognize our vulnerability and to be clothed in Christ and to, to fellowship together in that truth. So this nakedness is not mere physical nakedness. It's something much more. And God wants us to recognize our nakedness. And He has a cure for us. And the cure is not to go back to nakedness. I'm not advocating Christian nudity or something here at all. 
Matter of fact, there's no going back to the innocence of Eden. There's only going forward. And if you look in Scripture, what is mankind's uh, state is to be clothed. He, mankind is clothed right after that. Mankind, mankind is to be a clothed being. And so our destiny ultimately is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and in glory. When we go to heaven, we're not going to be naked. That's not the ultimate state. And that's a good thing. We're going to be clothed in righteousness and in glory. So there would be those that somehow have crazy doctrines about that. The Scripture does not teach that. And if you're interested, I'd love to to talk about the biblical theology of clothing. Um, That's another topic. But basically, bottom line is, mankind is to be a clothed being and ultimately clothed in the righteousness and glory of God. I hope I have not caused trouble for anybody with that, but it had to be addressed. So, uh, so as we see here, they're aware of their nakedness, and then they hide. They hide, right? God is walking in the cool of the garden. He comes, and He's there, and, and they, they panic. You know, They get caught. They say, oh no, God's coming. Hurry, quick, hide! And they, they're aware they're naked. They hide behind the trees. And, and it's interesting. I mean, the whole, this whole dialogue that's going on, the Old Testament, just a little side thing, I think that will help us. In the New Testament, in a lot of the letters, things are said explicitly, clearly, boom, it's just it's teaching up front. Much of the teaching in the Old Testament is in the form of stories. And so this is teaching us a lot. It's in the form of a story, but it teaches us much. And so this part of the story teaches us a lot about the character of God. God knew what was going on. He knew the second it happened. He knew before. He knew it was going to happen, for a matter of fact. If he's God, he must. He knew it, knew it all. But he yet comes into the garden. And, and, and what does he do? Adam, where are you? He seeks after Adam. He calls out after Adam. Where are you? You're not here. And the testimony of all of Scripture is God doing the same thing. Where are you? What are you doing? And he doesn't do that because he's ignorant. He does that because he's calling us from behind the tree to encounter Him and ultimately to encounter the cure. Where are you? Where are you? Is God's call in Genesis 3 and throughout Scripture. And so Adam comes out and he, he comes before God and, and God confronts him about what's going on and the fact that he knows that he's naked. And, and so Adam, first instance in all the Bible of blame shifting, doesn't say, I did this, I sinned, it's terrible. He says, the woman, you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So the consequences of sin, nakedness, ashamedness, broken relationship with God, broken relationship with the woman, and blame shifting. It's amazing. I mean, right there in Genesis 3. And isn't that, isn't that so true? For those of you who have kids... You know, you think of all the things you need to teach your kids. There's a couple things you don't need to teach them, right? You don't need to teach them to blame shift or to lie. It's amazing. It's amazing. I, I don't think I ever taught, and not that they do it much at all, um, but when you guys were little in particular, it was just amazing to watch the ingenuity and lying and blame shifting they could come up with all on their own. They didn't have to learn that. They inherited that from Adam and Eve. And that's, that's what's going on here. There's blame shifting. So he blames the woman... He abdicates his leadership and blames his wife. And, uh, and then she blames the serpent. And it's interesting, we'll talk about this later on, but, but uh, God does not question the serpent. He only judges the serpent. He doesn't pursue the serpent. 
He pursues Adam and Eve. He asks them questions and later on provides cure for them. So this is what we see here in Genesis 3 is indicative of, of the state of humanity in our sinfulness. The rest of the Bible is a clear testimony that this is not an isolated act here with Adam and Eve, but it follows through. And really through the use of story, the rest of Genesis paints a picture of humanity as one captive to sin, as one who has inherited a sinful nature from Adam and Eve. And because of that, they choose to sin. They follow through with sinfulness. So it's a clear testimony. And we must understand that for us, this is part of our reality as well. If the band could come up as we get ready to close. That we struggle with the same stuff. This is us in Genesis 3. Yes, it's Adam and Eve, and yes, their situation was unique and different from ours, but it is also our situation. It's also what goes on with us. And our sins may not be the, the obvious ones. You know, it's, it's interesting for believers, for any of you who have been a believer for a while, we've learned to kind of avoid the obvious ones that bring immediate you know, discipline of God or, or scorn from others. We know how to kind of do that. But we can be, and sometimes Christians are the worst at the subtle sins, the sins that are kind of a little more acceptable, a little more manageable, Sins like unthankfulness or pride or independence or self-righteousness. Boy, that's, that, I can struggle with that sin. Complaining or gossip. And we must be aware that, that these are sins just the same. They are what comes from Adam and Eve and it's what we do in our sinful nature. And if we're not careful, if we allow the workings of sin to have their way, we can be full of great evils and yet no one else may know it. Because as Christians, we can be good at hiding these things. And I think the teaching of Genesis 3 and and the whole Bible would say, repent. Repent. Stop thinking that that choice, that those sins are better than God's way. Stop thinking that there's benefit there. There may be temporary thrill, temporary feelings of benefit, but stop thinking that way. In your thinking, be mature. Recognize that it may feel good now, but later on it's not. This is not the best thing. Start filling your mind with the truth, with the truth and the promises of God. Repent and turn from sin. Stop doubting and believe. Learn to desire what is good. And then recognize in that the power to do all that comes not from you. It comes from God. For we are captive to our sin, left to ourselves. Yet God has called to Adam, where are you? And he has provided a cure. And later on in Genesis, we see hints of this ultimate cure, which is Christ himself. Isn't God good? I mean, he could have just wiped out Adam and Eve, boom, right then. I told you not to do it. I told you you would die. Boom, you're dead. That's the end. But he didn't. He called out to them. He sought them. He gave them promise of a cure in the skins that they wore and in the the prophecy to the woman. And we'll talk about that later. And then ultimately, He fulfilled all that in His Son. He saw fit to become man, the God-man, and to obey the Father. To enter into all our temptations, but to be without sin. 
to always obey, to always choose to believe the best was God's will, the best was God's glory, the best was fellowship with God and obedience, to follow through in desires, even when it was so intense like the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, Jesus knew temptation there. He knew it earlier, too. Yet he chose at that point, not my will, but yours will be done. Your will is best. And so he never failed. Though you and I may fail, either in subtle ways or major ways, he never failed. He obeyed the Father. He pleased the Father. And then even better than that, he took our horrible sins, these lies, this insanity that we follow, he took it on himself. He didn't have to do that. Because he's God, because he's good, he did. He took our sins on himself. And then God executed his perfect justice on the Son, his holy wrath towards sin, and put his Son to death on the cross. And the penalty for sin was paid. And now he offers to us, believe it or not, it's amazing, even as sinners, forgiveness. He offers to treat us as if we had obeyed like the Son. Complete forgiveness. But it's just not a general offer. He calls us to respond to this truth. He calls us to respond simply in repentance and faith. And you know what that is? That's just saying, this thing is not the best. He is. This sin is not what I want to pursue. I want Him. I want His forgiveness. I want His life. That's all it is. It's just recognizing what's real. And it's believing it. And our desires and our actions will follow. He calls us to repent and to put our faith in Him. And and I would call you, and I would call each of us, to do just that right now. Let's just take a minute. Maybe you're aware of some sin that's tempted you today. Maybe you are in a state of constant sinfulness and you have not considered this invitation that you're given from the Word of God. Let's just once again come to Him and say, Forgive me, Lord, for calling what is not best best, and for calling you and your ways something less than what it is. Lord, I, I now ask you to forgive me and I thank you. Lord, I don't want to pursue sin. I want you. I want your forgiveness. I want your life. I want what is best. I want you. So just take a minute in light of your temptation perhaps recently to just tell him those things. Lord, we just thank you for your love and your goodness and glory, your ways, and you are the best. And thank you that you forgive us. Thank you that you pursue us. You do not leave us to hide behind the tree. You call us 
And so, Lord, we come to you. We turn from our sin and we turn to you for forgiveness, for life, for to enjoy what is truly best. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. There's even more good news for the believer. And not only starts and ends with our forgiveness because of Christ's blood, His death for us, but it continues because He gives the believer His Spirit. And now there's no longer just this inherited nature from Adam. There's a new nature. The Spirit of God is in us. We are new creations. And now there's something in us striving against this old way. Thank God for that. Thank God that there's something in us that says, yes, I want something better. And the Spirit is in us and He's moving and He gives us power to say no to sin and yes to God. To put off these old ways and to put on the new ways. To walk according to newness of life in Christ. So we're not left alone. We're not orphans. We are forgiven. We are counted righteous in Christ. And we are made to be like Him. Step by step in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a cure. There is a story that's better than this horror story of Genesis 3. The story of Jesus Christ. His life, death, and His work in us and through us to His glory. There's a better story. Thank God for that. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord. I just ask You, Lord, for each of us here, Lord, would You help us to remember the greater story. Lord, to not kid ourselves about the horror story, to not ignore this, to not think that it's not true, but to face it full on and to see its horror. To understand the workings of sin, but even more so to understand the power of the Gospel, the good news of Christ and of Your life in us. Thank You, Lord, for forgiveness. Thank You for Your pursuit. Thank You for Your power so that the penalty of sin is paid for. The power of sin is broken and You are working out eliminating the presence of sin in our lives. We thank You. We praise You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.